Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. Are you excited to talk about Alice today? I am really excited. Are you? (laughs) (laughs) I am. I feel like you have been itching to get to this book for a while, though, so I'm going to lean on your expertise a little bit for this one. I, I have been really excited to talk about this one. It's such a strange book. Um... And there's a lot to talk about, but also not much to say in terms of like some things that we normally talk about, like plot and characterization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this will be an interesting conversation. But I thought that since this is the first episode of our spring semester, we should just remind folks that over the next four months, we are going to be delving into the world of classic children's literature. So February is all about fantasy. Today we're talking about Alice in Wonderland. Next we'll be covering A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. And then we will be, for the first time, pairing two books on the podcast in conversation in a single episode to talk about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis and The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. So that's our our February. Um, But if you haven't yet, make sure to go back and listen to our um, spring semester lineup episode, which is episode 109 in your podcast players, to hear why we decided to do this and to learn about our entire spring lineup. So Chelsea feels a little cruel to be calling the spring semester when (laughs) (laughs) when there's snow on the ground yeah it's still so frigid but are you excited for our spring semester I really am I love revisiting books from childhood and just I don't know it it's really fun and everyone else's enthusiasm around it our our listeners enthusiasm has really I don't know pushed me into a, a state of uh more excitement, I think, than I was feeling before we shared with everyone. Um, and I think that Kidlet is just such a good way to um, reconnect with yourself as a reader and remember your reading roots and just kind of get back to getting lost in a story. So I'm excited for all of that. Speaking of revisiting, let's talk a little bit about our past experiences with this book. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get, do a summary ish yeah, <laughs> and get into our specifics. So what's your history with Alice? I'm just going to start saying Alice in Wonderland, even though I'm one of those people who's like, it's actually Alice's adventures yeah. in Wonderland. But, uh, what's your, what's your experience with this one? I remember reading it a couple times as a kid and then, but it's been a really long time. I probably read it maybe like in middle school and again in high school maybe. And then reading it again, I was like, okay, this is the kind of book that I'm not really reading for enjoyment. Like I didn't love the reading experience, but I think it's so fun to examine and talk about. 
So I don't remember what I thought of it uh, when I first read it. Um, I do know that growing up, there was a lot of like Alice in Wonderland pop culture yeah. stuff. Right. Do you remember that really trippy show? I think it, uh, oh, what was it called? We'll have to put a link in show notes. But it was Alice and it was like real people and characters. So like some of them were dressed up like as the cat and it was very 90s and very trippy. Oh, yeah. This is ringing a bell now that you say this. It's like I bet if I said I'll try and look at a trailer. I bet if I sent it to you, it would like unlock something yeah, in your brain. Please do. Um, <laughs> so there was a lot of, of that. Um, and then the, I think there was like an early aughts adaptation, like a Tim, Tim Burton, Burton adaptation. Yeah. Um, so I feel like it was in the air. Um, and that's probably why I ended up reading it a couple times as a kid, but yeah, so now I was like, okay, like I'm reading this, it's fine, but I think I'll get more enjoyment from talking about it with you today than I did from just reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't think I read this as a kid. I if if I did, I don't have any memories of it. I definitely remember watching the Disney cartoon, um, and it being like a little scary, which I I now think is very appropriate. <laughs> revisiting the book a couple of times. But I read this in a class that I cite all the time for my master's program. My uh, class called it The Other Victorians, which was all about basically the way we view the Victorians as these prim and proper and buttoned up um, folks (laughs) isn't quite right. Or at least that there was a very vibrant counterculture happening at the same time. And um, this book was presented in that context, particularly because of what the book is kind of saying about Victorian schoolrooms and education and how that all worked, which we can chat about as we get further. But um, so I kind of came to it already thinking about it as this subversive text rather than thinking of it as this kind of cozy children's classic that has this seedy or underbelly like that. I I never really had the cozy classic part. I will say, I, I think it's so interesting what you're talking about with the pop culture element, like the Alice, like iconography is so vivid and so specific. I, I, one I thing that I find hilarious is Louise can recognize Alice. Like we have an Alice in Wonderland pillow. She has a couple of, um, Alice in Wonderland baby books. And when she sees a girl in a big blue dress, she says, Alice, Alice, <laughs> she knows. So it's like oh. so specific that yeah. she can like in different contexts recognize that, which is so fascinating. Okay. Well, Lou is a genius. Well, but yes, she is. <laughs> that aside. <laughs> Um, but I also just think like connected to that, um, but in a completely different arena, reading this while watching a toddler's language develop was Mm. really fascinating. So I just, I have a whole new appreciation for it now, although I would not say this is a book I'm like excited to read to her one day. (laughs) We'll see. It's, it is weird and it does have this element of creepiness Mm -hmm. to it and 
I mean, I think that's partly just like Victorian, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's of the time. Um, But I think Lewis Carroll was a weird guy too. He was. And I think we should just like get, talk about this at the start Um, because his, the way his biography and reputation has evolved and um, historians make different things of him is important to talk about. Um, So Lewis Carroll, very educated young man um, who was studying to be a minister. That didn't happen. He ended up being a writer and, and an artist. He had these close relationships with families. Like he never had a family of his own, but he would kind of get like adopted into these families, you know, being friends with the parents, but also close with the children. And he really liked being in the company of children. And there is speculation now that that had a sexual proclivity to it. This is a tough one for me because... If that's true, that's like the worst thing imaginable. If it's not, I feel really terrible saying, well, we can't read these books, you know, and it's just like, we don't, we don't know. And I think there historians debate and disagree about Lewis Carroll in this regard. Real name, Charles Dodgson. Um, I don't know. How how do you wrap your mind around this question? It is, I, I found it tricky as I was reading a few different pieces about him. Um, one piece talked about how he was an avid photographer. And so these families would ask him to take pictures of their children. And at the time, it was popular for Victorians to have like undressed or semi-nude pictures of their kids taken. So if they would like, you know, dress up as angels and cherubs and they, you know, would be unclothed in some way. Um, And so I do think that sometimes it's hard to differentiate things that seem so culturally abominable to us and our modern sensibilities um, from what was deemed okay at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also just feels creepy. Totally. Um, And uh, like some of the letters that he wrote to some young girls are very um, kind of weird. And like, it seems like some of the parents ended up being uncomfortable with his relationship with the kids eventually. Like it was okay for a while. And then it seems like maybe he crossed the line and then they changed their minds. Mm -hmm. But none of these people are alive today to ask about it. The letter, like we can only speculate. Um, yeah. And the, there's so many interesting questions about like, you know, some historians cite the girl's age as younger than others when they're looking at these letters and all of the ages, I feel like we would say like, you know, 16, totally inappropriate, Mm -hmm. but at, again, at the time and the context, less so. And there's also speculation that, I mean, a lot of the speculation kind of revolves around this understanding that he never had relationships with adult women, mm-hmm. but other historians disagree about that too, because right after his death, his family destroyed a lot of his letters and um, his work and and his journals, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And 
some historians believe that he did have relationships with adult women and that that's what the family chose to destroy because at the time that's what would damage his reputation was Mm. that he was um, seeing women and wasn't married to them. And it's Mm. just, it's, it's so tricky, but I, I think the best thing to do as readers is to look it in the eye and, Mm -hmm. you know, not shy away from these essential questions. Um, and also I, I I think looking at the Victorian context is important for weird, creepy books like this and for like the, the more mainstream classics that we, Mm -hmm. that we read. And so I, I always appreciate kind of unpacking these cultural constructs and personalities and potential problems with you. Yeah. And here's the other thing. I don't think that he could have written such an accurate and complicated uh, story of childhood um, and captured that kind of childlike wonder without either him being very childlike himself and sort of really connecting to that part of himself or being around kids all the time. Mm-hmm. And I also like don't want to assume that anyone who enjoys children and like they're they are really fun um, and you don't necessarily have to be a married um, parent in order to like care very deeply about kids. Like I think our world would be a lot better if more people cared about kids, well, right? Yeah, I um, think that's what's so, it so is really complicated. hard for me about this question is like, there's a very clear line. And if he's mm-hmm. on one side of the line, it is like absolutely abominable. And if mm-hmm. he's on the other and just enjoys spending time with kids, then I think that's like great. a kindergarten teacher, yeah. right? It's like, it's so... It's so hard and we just don't know. And I think that if the the question of it makes some readers feel like absolutely creeped out and want to keep everything to do with this at arm's length, that's totally fair. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think that this book has a lot to offer in terms of kind of giving a voice to children in a Mm -hmm. historical context that was like very repressive (laughs) of children. And so I I find it really interesting in that regard. All right. So let's just talk about Alice and her adventures. Alice is a little girl. Did your professors or did you ever read any speculation on how old Alice is supposed to be in this book? I think she's supposed to be around seven. Okay. Um, and so Alice, seven-year-old, big imagination, she essentially daydreams up this, this wild adventure where she follows a white rabbit um, and she ends up in Wonderland where animals talk and she eats mushrooms and cookies that make her grow and shrink in size. Nothing really makes sense. There's a lot of nonsense going on. Um, she's requested to recite poetry and she listens to other characters recite poetry and she wanders through this path um, to try and eventually get home. But it doesn't really seem like she's that concerned about like escaping Wonderland (laughs) at any point. Um, And that is, that's basically the summary. I, um, I think that if you 
have like just seen the Disney movie and haven't read it, you might be surprised at some parts um, that are are in this and excluded or things that are in the movie and not in this because the movie does combine some things from the sequel uh, through the looking glass and from Lewis Carroll's poetry. But you might also be surprised at some of the like scene for scene beats that are in the cartoon and some of the dialogue is like exactly what's in in the text. So it's pretty pretty interesting coming at it from from that angle. I well, I'm curious Chelsea, were there any scenes that stood out to you upon reading it this time? I always and I remember liking from previous reads and liked this time. I always like when Alice is talking to herself. And I know that that's not necessarily, that doesn't seem like a very memorable scene. But to me, I I don't know. I think that's where a lot of the humor comes out when mm-hmm. she's like talking to herself and she kind of contradicts herself. Or you can tell that she's reciting things that grownups have told to her that she's expected to believe. Um, so I don't know. I I always find that really fascinating. And it all, it, those are the parts that kind of make me think of like, well, how did I talk to myself when I was a kid? Um, I love and so, that too. Yeah. So I'm thinking like when she is um, early on, when she's like debating of what to eat and um, she tells herself, come, there's no use in crying like that. I advise you to leave off this minute. And it's like, you know that a grown up in her life told her that at uh-huh. some point. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I I love um, how he even explicitly says that sometimes Alice likes to pretend to be two people. Yeah. And I, I think that that just captures so much like this internalization of rules that happens around this age where you go from having to be told what is okay and what is not to like internalizing them and being able to conduct your own behavior in a proper way. But what I love about it all is it just reminds you how arbitrary some of these rules are and, um, and how kind of silly it is to develop that kind of super ego that's telling you what to do at all times. Um, I mean, I, I think this book just like you said, captures so much about what it feels like to be a child. And I think that is one thing it captures so well is this internalization of, of rules of figuring out what's right and wrong but not necessarily in a real ethical or moral sense, just in a propriety sense. Yeah, because Alice encounters a lot of different rules and rules change in Wonderland, right? And she's not taking time to like examine why these things are happening or why something is a certain way. She's just like, oh, I guess this is the way it is and I better go this way. Or um, she kind of, picks herself up and moves on right from it. And that, that to me is very childlike. Like you don't always understand the why behind something. We know kids ask why, 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 why? Because they're trying to understand what is the reasoning behind this. But also I remember as a kid, like you kind of don't care. Mm-hmm. Like you just, it just want is to the be, way it is. Yeah, exactly. And you just have to operate in that world. And this 
definitely captures that feeling of just kind of being like, okay, well, I guess I just have to like go with this. Yeah. And the rules might be different at home versus at school versus at your babysitter's house. And you just kind of have to constantly shift and it might feel like nonsense to you, Mm -hmm. but you have to just operate in that system. And in addition to the like rule shift, I think one of the, and this is also part of what, where Alice's like internal, (laughs) externalized internal monologue comes in is when she is thinking about school and lessons. And this I think can be a like tricky part for contemporary or modern readers. All of like Alice's thinking about lessons and being told to recite things. And, and so just as like historical context in the Victorian period when England was becoming industrialized and um, work was shifting kind of from agricultural to industrial, school and changed and what was expected. And, and Alice is like a, based on a, a more uh, well-to-do child. And so her, the type of schooling she got would be different from the type of schooling that um, that like common children <laughs> would receive. But it was kind of formalized. Education was more formalized at this time and kids were expected to learn the same things. It was considered an advantage to um, teach children how to do basic arithmetic and how to read so that they could be funneled into um, the appropriate jobs that the nation needed. But also this is the time when schools kind of began to operate as like training grounds for what it was like to work in a factory. Like this is why there are bells in schools is because there are bells in factories and signaling like the time shift of like now is the time of day where we do math and then the bell rings and now is the time of day we do our recitations. Um, It's all modeled after that like Victorian factory setting. And so um, Alice's like kind of internalized rhythms of that, of having to perform on demand and having to sit for lessons. Um, It's kind of some of Carol's um, critique of these very rigid, no imagination (laughs) type of classes um, and lessons that were formalized at this time. Which are the same to this day. Exactly, I know. For the most part. (laughs) We might not be reciting uh, Old Father William in class, but the Pledge of Allegiance before each day starts. We learn all of the same nursery rhymes when we're little. Um, Just, yeah, it's it's so similar to this day. It's wild. Yeah, it's, it's school being like a means of producing a homogenous workforce was really what was happening. And so this like escape to Wonderland where the things she's supposed to be reciting change. They come out of her mouth different and she knows they're not right. Um, And she's confused about that. She isn't sure if she's going to get in trouble or critiqued because what she says is a little bit off Um, is, yeah, just kind of this celebration of, of a more imaginative play in response to this very rigid structure. So I do really, I love 
books about imagination. I was a very imaginative child, like always pretending to be in a different world or um, adopting a book as like my new game to play that I was pretending that I was in this book. But I think one thing, and I don't remember how I felt about this when I read this book when I was younger, but it this book has always made me kind of anxious. Mm-hmm. There is always the fear that Alice is going to get in trouble. There is always, I think, that fear of not knowing which rules to follow and what's going to happen if you misstep. That really reaches into something in my psyche that I'm probably going to have to talk about with a therapist. <laughs> but there, that is what is scary to me about Wonderland. Like, yes, things are kind of creepy and weird in this world. But to me, it is not Alice doesn't know how things work. Um, and there is that thing of like, am I going to do something wrong and get in trouble? I don't know what I'm going to do that makes the queen say off with your head. Mm -hmm. That's scary to me. That is scary. And I think that that's how it feels to be a child sometimes as you, you have like internalized what you think is right and wrong. You've internalized these rules. You think, you know, the expectations and then they change on you. And that that is scary. Um, I think it's captured really well in a very anxiety <laughs> provoking way in this book. And I, I think that that is an important part of like the ending. We're definitely going to get into spoilers in this yeah. episode because <laughs> it's so this book short. Is old and short. <laughs> um, but it's at the trial where Alice just like fully is just like she wakes up, right? She she can't yeah. handle this anymore because she is she's sitting at a trial um, where the jury is a bunch of animals who cannot write or they can write, but they don't know what they're writing. Half of them are writing one thing, half the other. She is looking at this lizard who is like sitting upside down in the jury box and just it, it's supposed to be, right, this very formal um, mm-hmm. place where you determine what is right and wrong and who is good and bad and who's committed a crime and who's innocent. And she sees the absolute nonsense and ridiculousness of it. And that's where the whole thing just kind of breaks for her. Okay. So that scene in particular, I felt like I had to skim a little bit because it was getting my heart rate going. I was an anxious kid. And so that kind of situation just would have put me over the edge. I didn't like when the classroom was too loud. Um, yeah, I was very anxious and like sensitive. Um, not shy, (laughs) but anxious and sensitive. And like, I didn't, I didn't like anything chaotic like that. Um, and so, yeah, maybe, maybe that's why this isn't like one of my favorite books, but it does, it totally does capture that feeling of being a kid. I'm also curious, Sarah, about so if Alice is seven she's not going through puberty but reading this it definitely feels like commentary on puberty and growing and becoming a grown-up so I am eager to hear what you learned about that through your classes or your personal research yeah I mean I I think that the it definitely, I think puberty, of course, is like the time we think about of like the biggest bodily changes that kids, adolescents experience. But 
I mean, you think about like our toddlers, they physically change every day, right? Like they didn't used to have a tooth and now they do. Or, you know, they all of a sudden like look like two inches taller than they did the day before. They can do this with their body when they never could before, or they can't do something with their body that used to be so comfortable. And I think that that just like that experience of near constant change. And of course things slow down as kids. (laughs) It's not as rapid growth as in the first year, but that, that is part of the experience of being a child too, is just like not always knowing what to do with your body, being told that you have to like restrain it in certain ways. I always think about like, you know, if you've ever seen like videos or pictures of kids in some schools where they have to like hold their arms, hug themselves while they walk through the hall because they are being taught they have to like constrain their bodies um, and not take up and as much space. You know, I, I, I think that the constant bodily changes and the constant restrictions that kids' bodies are under from adults is very much represented in in Alice's constant drinking and growing and butting up against the walls of a house and not being able to get into places she wants to. Mm, That's really interesting physically. And then also just society relegates kids to such second-class citizens, Mm -hmm. I feel, like not willing to listen to them when they have ideas or, um, yeah, just the, I, I, can make so many connections with just like the restriction around um, our expectations of kids to like be calm and quiet all the time when that is just the total opposite of developmental normalcy for them. Yeah. And, and you really see like that internalized in Alice, like she wants, she wants to be good. She wants, Mm -hmm. like, even when she's like falling, first falling down the rabbit hole. And she starts like reciting, talking about longitude and latitude. And she doesn't know what those words mean, but she just has this instinct to please and impress. And she recognizes that there's no one around to please and impress, but that's, that's like her go-to mode because that's what, Mm. that's what she's been taught to do, that that's what good means. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like this is a good book for parents to read. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm I'm feeling like, oh man, I need to like take some notes for a future <laughs> therapy session. <laughs> I, the other thing that of course really comes up throughout this book that I alluded to being interesting to me uh, when we first started talking is how slippery language is. Mm. Like, and you think about this, we don't think about it because we're so immersed in living and breathing our English language. But Mm -hmm. when you think about an English language learner, whether that's our toddlers or somebody learning English from another language, how many words there are that mean two totally different things. Like when Alice is all, and the animals are all wet and they want to get dry, but dry means both like not wet, but also a really boring story. And so somebody starts uh-huh. telling a really boring, dry story. And like, 
it's it's kind of mind-boggling that like little brains figure all of that out <laughs> just picking it up from the ether. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh my goodness. I'm trying to think of an example with Theo already where like they they understand the differentiation. It's it is wild. Yeah, for Lou I think about how so she has one book, the noisy book where mm-hmm. the cold goes achoo. But she also <laughs> knows that when it's cold outside, we say brr. And so if you say cold, she'll kind of look and she'll sometimes go brr and she'll sometimes go achoo. And oh, it's like, funny. yeah, the those mean two very different things. And like she's trying to sort it, sort it out. Is there... A different example of that in here where the language, I was thinking the mock turtle story was one particular vignette that's like, oh yeah, they're um, Lewis Carroll's taking all of the fun of language and putting it on the page here. I think the caterpillar is another good one. Yeah. the ca- When the caterpillar, I think it's the caterpillar who keeps asking her, what does it mean? And that is just thinking about unpacking pronouns is so interesting. Like what does it mean in and of itself versus within context? There's just, there's so much with the language here. Um, there are also double meanings of, of draw. And then the other, the other thing that happens so often throughout is just Alice just keeps repeating words and phrases until they lose all meaning. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you just say a word out loud so many times that you're like, it's like your brain shuts off. Like, what does that even mean mm-hmm. when she and Alice does that over and over? And she's like, do cats eat bats? Do cats eat bats? And she says it over and over and over um, until it just becomes completely meaningless. Yeah, lately, it's probably not in your mouth. Don't yeah. put that in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. Not in your mouth. What is a mouth? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's not food. That's not food. And then yeah. what is food? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I I find all of the language stuff so interesting. And just how like we still like still like language is kind of learned through that memorization. I think another fascinating scene is um, more focused on like syntax, but at the tea party where they're debating whether say what you mean and mean what you say yeah, mean the same thing. <laughs> then they go through this whole li- uh, list of examples, like saying, I see what I eat isn't the same thing as I eat what I see or I like what I get isn't the same thing as I get what I like. Um, All of those examples and they just really just make you, I mean, they can be just sort of funny in the moment, um, but they also just really make you think about language and how you can just take these same simple words and arrange them in a way that means two completely different things. And I feel like that can be anxiety provoking (laughs) as a little kid too. Just like, you know, what, what power 
your words have or somebody else's words have towards you. And we get that same like question and anxiety at the end with the queen and and off with her head. And we learn that that's almost always an empty threat, but the language itself is scary. Okay. I was also thinking about how when you're a kid, you learn things in a certain context. And then as you explore the world more, sometimes the context changes. So like Alice, she has a cat. She's seen a cat before, right? But she's never seen a cat with a grin. Or like she's seen a rabbit before and she's followed a rabbit before, but she's never followed a rabbit with a pocket watch who talks. Or like there are all of these things that like she has a little concept of but not in the weird context of Wonderland where something's just slightly off. And I just think about like how all of these connections happen in little minds. I mean, even just like when Theo's learning an animal noise or a word, like it takes him a little bit. Like if he's just learning the alligator goes chomp, chomp, he'll only know it if he sees the certain alligator toy that we have. And then eventually an alligator's on the television or he sees something that looks like an alligator. Like lately, an ad for She-Hulk has like gone across the screen as I'm like <laughs> pulling up an app and he goes, hop, 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 because he thinks it's an alligator. <laughs> yes. And that's wild. And that's totally like Alice is wandering through here and like everything's a little off and she has to figure out this new context for the things she thought she knew. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's so true and such a good example. Like, yeah, we have books where the animals are drawn as cartoons and books where there are photographs. And then she's seen some of the animals. Louisa's seen some of the animals in real life. And like connecting mm-hmm. all of those takes a lot of cognitive work. I just I do think that this book is really good at capturing the cognitive dissonance, the kind of anxiety and fears of being a child and some of the magic. Um, but I, I mean, Wonderland isn't like a place I want to visit. Like we're Mm -mm. starting our, our semester on children's literature. And I think that a lot of us think about like the coziness of it, the escapism. And I, well, I think this book captures childhood imagination. It also shows you that that imagination can be magical and scary. Um, not knowing sometimes what's in your imagination and what's real. All of that is, is at work here. So I think, I don't know. I feel like this was a really good book to kick us off. I would agree, Sarah. What about that ending though? I, I honestly, I didn't remember the ending and I did remember that she like woke up from a dream, um, which is not like narratively a construct I tend to like, although it really makes mm-hmm. sense in this yeah. version. Um, but I I didn't remember that it's then her sister who has kind of the last little bit of the, the book. And because Alice tells her sister about, um, about her dream and her sister kind of herself starts dozing off or just daydreaming and thinking about everything Alice told her. And then she thinks about Alice as a grown woman and how she would keep through all her riper years the simple and loving heart of her childhood. 
and how she would gather about her little children and make their eyes bright and eager with many a strange tale, perhaps even with the dream of Wonderland of long ago, and how she would feel with all their simple sorrows and find a pleasure in all their simple joys, remembering her own child life and the happy summer days. It's just, it's such a, that is such a nice, cozy way to end a book that is a little bit scary and creepy. Just that because of Alice's imagination, she's going to be able to connect with children, even as as an adult, um, and empathize with their little sorrows. And I think that that part too is kind of um, interesting to read as a parent, just thinking about how some of the things that Louise gets upset about and you just want to keep moving forward with your day. Mm -hmm. And it's just this, you know, this speed bump of having to calm her down and figure out what's going on. And just this reminder that, yeah, their kids have these simple sorrows and simple joys, but they are so big to them. Um, I I liked the ending a lot. How about you? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't remember the sister part either. Mm-hmm. And then that last paragraph, I was like, oh, this is really sweet. And like maybe something I need to remember moving forward. And then like yesterday, I was walking around outside with Theo and his little puffy jacket and it's there's snow on the ground. And I was kind of daydreaming about spring and the things <laughs> that we can do outside and playing with chalk and blowing bubbles and things like that. And I think Sometimes you get to parenthood or maybe you're babysitting or you're taking care of a younger sibling and those things all kind of end up feeling like a chore because they're just part of caretaking. But I was like, what if this spring and summer I really uh, let myself enjoy those things like with childlike wonder and like as a kid, I Mm -hmm. loved playing with sidewalk chalk when I was little. I loved drawing. I loved all of that stuff. What if Theo and I get to like play certain games on the playground as he gets a little older that can connect me to that. And so they're just, I don't know, they're, it's not like I'm like really taking the moral of this book with me, but I, I think this whole, uh, revisiting and taking a look at children's literature can kind of help with that connection of getting us to just like act like kids again. I agree. Again, I think this is a great book to start us off with because it kind of put me in that mindset and gave me some things to pay attention to in our future books this semester that I might not have otherwise. Because I do think this book, like you said, you didn't read it for enjoyment. I do think this book is much more interesting of a text to study than it is to get lost in. But there are these moments that really like you said, we don't want to reduce it to the moral of the story, but there are these moments that serve as great reminders of what it is like to be a child that we can think about both in our lives and in our books for the rest of the semester. So with that in mind, Chelsea, I am really excited to hear about your pairings. So we are each only going to be offering two like official pairings for each book this semester. Um, But it looks like we both have just a couple other things jotted down. So we'll do two in-depth and then we'll just throw out some other titles as well. All right, Sarah. Up first, I have a classic to pair with a classic. Perfect. 
I couldn't help myself. We can't cover every classic, so I'm glad. Exactly. Yeah. So I think a great pairing for Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is The Phantom Toll Booth by Norton Juster, which to me is like a cozy, fun, imaginative book that I do like to reread um, and enjoy reading without like having the academic conversation attached to it. So it's there are a lot of parallels and similarities to Alice. We have a young boy named Milo and he is so bored. So kind of like Alice at the beginning of the story where she's like, it's hot today and oh, I wish something exciting would happen. Well, a toll booth shows up in his room and he goes on through because he's like, okay, let's see where this goes. Um, but on the other side, he ends up in this world where everything is, you know, different. There is a watchdog who is actually a dog with a clock and his name is Talk. Um, he has to rescue Rhyme and Reason. There are all of these delightful language puns and grammatical, um, just like fun nods to English grammar and, and words. And it's, you know, this kind of silly random world. There's the island of conclusions and you have to jump in order to get there. <laughs> There's just some really, some really fun stuff. And so I remember clever. really liking it as a kid and liking it when I reread it as an adult. This was first published in 1961. So it is, you know, kind of, I can see where Alice's Adventures in Wonderland would have really inspired Norton Juster to write this, um, but it it does feel a little bit more updated, um, and I really really love it. I think it's a great pairing with Alice. So that's the Phantom Toll Booth by Norton Juster. Oh, I love that. Um, makes me want to revisit that one too. Um, okay, my first pairing is something I just read in order to vet and bring to the show. And I liked it. It is Furthermore by Tahira Mafi. Have you read or heard of this one? I think I've seen it while like scrolling my Libby app. Okay. Yeah. Not to be confused with Nevermore by Jessica Townsend, which would also be a fantastic pairing for Alice in Wonderland, but it's one that I think more people know about. Um, But Furthermore is a book about a girl named Alice, of course, but it's not a retelling. (laughs) Um, Alice lives in the kingdom of Farinwood, where color and magic are everything. And the amount of, of vibrant color something has, the more magic it is likely to have. And Alice was born a little bit different. She's very she's very pale. She has these kind of amber eyes, but otherwise she she's like not, like almost translucent, just like lacking color. Um and she struggles in her in her world because of that and um she wonders if she has has magic. And um 
then her beloved father goes missing and Alice will do anything to get him back. And so she kind of teams up with this boy who used to be her friend until he said something very offensive to her. And she, (laughs) but now she has to um, pair back up with him to find her father. And what I think pairs so well about this, I mean, this one does pair well with so many, like it's clearly inspired by like Narnia and some other books, but it does include a lot of not, not language games, but language missteps. Um, the way characters speak to each other, they sometimes get words a little bit off and that changes the meaning and is showing again, like that slipperiness of language. This book is also scary. I thought (laughs) like it says ages nine plus it it felt like more for a, uh, older middle grade audience to me. And it, it is scary kind of in the way that Alice in Wonderland is scary is in that it like is highlighting some of these childhood anxieties. Like, like the book fully talks about how Alice's mother doesn't really like her that much. Like she can muster up like love for her, but, um, she much more prefers her, her sons to Alice, like that kind of thing. And so I think that it is working in the same vein as Alice in Wonderland, where, it's playing up some of the scary aspects of being a child and some of the anxieties children can have. Um, so it's the, the prose is really clever and fun. There's a lot of talk about nonsense and how nonsense is just not, um, tolerated in this community and this magical land. And Alice maybe likes a little bit more nonsense. (laughs) Um, it's really good. It's, it's, again, I think it's, a bit darker than some of the other middle grade fantasy that I've read and love, but I think it's a, it's a good one. So that's Furthermore by Tahara Mafi. Okay. My next book, Sarah, I think that you would really like. I have it and I, okay. Okay. Tell me, tell me why I should read it now. <laughs> I think you would like it. I've been listening to the audiobook, Excellent on audio. Highly recommend listening to it, but I think it would be super fun on the page too, especially because there are lots of footnotes. And I think the narrator does a great job with them, but those are always fun to read. So the book that I uh, have to pair next is Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies by Heather Fawcett. And this I've seen um, labeled as cozy academia fantasy, which I love. Well, that's great. Um, I'm sold. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I mean, I, I think that that really meshes with Lewis Carroll as a person. He was an academic. He taught mathematics and uh, went to Oxford and like was this very academic dude. Um, And anyway, okay. So Emily Wilde, she is a scholar. She's a professor and she studies the fae um, and fairies just around the world. And so she is traveling to this kind of Scandinavian um, area to study their certain type of fae. And so I think just like that whole traveling to an unfamiliar world, trying to apply your knowledge to figure it out. 
she doesn't really love people. She's like very introverted and kind of awkward. Um, And so she really prefers to be very scholarly. When she goes to do her research, she is there on a research trip. She doesn't like make friends. But this town that she goes to, they all want to treat her like a guest. They want to show her hospitality. They want to um, welcome her and sort of treat her in a different way. And so she has to navigate that. Um, there's a lot of language throughout the book and most of it is just related to fairies, but something that I liked and something that I think is, you know, fun about Alice is as Alice is going and experiencing these things with different characters in Wonderland, often there's a pause and they tell her a story. Mm -hmm. And so what I like about Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies is you're going along and you're reading, this is actually written as Emily's journals. Like Mm -hmm. these are her field notes that you're reading, but you're going along and you're reading her like account of what happened, but then she'll stop and she'll tell a story about a fairy from a different part of the world or a certain story or some folklore that she heard um, prior and that she has studied or certain facts about fairies. And that's where some of the footnotes come in. And I found that to be a really fun reading experience. There's magic, but it's also dangerous and kind of scary. So there's a good blend of that kind of Alice tone and and mood to it. So yeah, I think this one's really fun. And I think that fans of Alice's adventures could kind of take this as like a grown-up, not version, but like adjacent if you like the sort of academic notes found in Alice and the the side interjected stories that pop up. This one was, again, so fun on audio. Excellent narrator with just a delightful British accent. That is Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies by Heather Fawcett. I'm very excited to read that one. And I'm glad for the tip to do it on audio because as you know, I have been trying to make it a priority to read more print. So I'm trying to be very thoughtful about what I use my audio credits for and what I pick up on the page. All right. Um, Well, my second pairing is the first book in a series. Um, It is Every Heart a Doorway by Seanan McGuire. And I'm throwing you off here, Chelsea, because I didn't even put that in the outline. I just decided it was going to be my pairing right now. (laughs) Um, Have you read these books? No, but I mean, I I hear about them from friends all the time who read more fantasy than I do. Yeah, this is a really, I've only read the first book, Every Heart a Doorway. I believe there are at least four, maybe five now. Um, And the first one, it takes place at Eleanor West's home for wayward children. And Eleanor West is a, she's like a school teacher, she runs this boarding school for children who have come back. So this is the first sentence of the description on the the back cover. Children have always disappeared under the right conditions, slipping through the shadows under a bed or at the back of a wardrobe, tumbling down rabbit holes and into old wells and emerging somewhere else. So it's about the children once they've returned. So kind of the premise of the book is these magical worlds draw people in when they need them. And sometimes they need them forever. And sometimes the person 
the child can become so integrated into their other world um, that they live there forever and sometimes not. And the transition back into our world from these fantasy lands, what is that like? Um, And I, I don't think that's a wholly original concept. I think there are lots of books that have kind of explored like Dorothy's life after the Wizard of Oz, or you think there's, there are versions of Alice like that. But what's so cleverly done in Sean and McGuire's book is she has all of these children at this school together and they've all been in various fantasy worlds and they have kind of a system for how they organize them. Um, and one of the, one of the like scales is like from order to nonsense. Like some worlds are very orderly and others are very nonsensical. Um, and some are, I think another scale is kind of like, uh, like, um, happy versus sad sort of situation. And so our main character in this one is Nancy and she's been in a pretty like dark fantasy world, but it just really suited her and she's really struggling to be back. And so she's landed at Emily West or Eleanor West's. Um, and she, she is trying to bond with these other kids, but she's also trying to find her way back to her world. And that's an experience that a lot of these kids have. This is a novella. It's like less than 200 pages. It's super quick. It's very dark. Um, there ends up being a kind of mystery and there's some, there's no violence on the page, but there, it's also not like, it's not at all cozy. There's, it's a little bit gruesome. And I just, I think that this series is so clever. And I love that question of like, you know, both literally and metaphorically, like what happens when we emerge from that fantasy world? Like whether you're looking at that, like, again, literally like, okay, if somebody who had an experience like Alice did in this book, how would she adjust back to real life? Um, but also in the metaphorical category, like what is it like to be a very imaginative child and that to be encouraged and encouraged and then emerge from that and have to function in this very non-imaginative, serious world. So I really loved the first book. I'm bad at continuing with series. I, I, I should read more of this one. I just haven't. Um, but I know that folks who have continued on really enjoyed, um, the rest of the series. So it's the Wayward Children series, starting with Every Heart a Doorway by Shannon McGuire. That sounds so good. What a perfect pairing, Sarah. That's well, I awesome. can't believe I didn't think of it until we were recording. Um, I feel like I had this floating in the back of my mind. I kept thinking like, I know I have a perfect pairing, but what is it? What is it? <laughs> so I'm glad it came to me finally. Um, really quickly, there are just two young adult Alice retellings that I want to shout out. Heartless by Marissa Meyer. I've loved Marissa Meyer's sort of fairy tale spins. And Heartless is like a prequel and a story about uh, the Queen of Hearts. And then A Blade So Black by L.L. McKinney is supposed to be like a very violent, gory kind of Alice retelling. So if you're looking for more Alice and want to go the retelling route, those are just a couple that come highly recommended. Oh, that's fun. Um, I have one I haven't read, um, but a book I came across in some research called Silver World 
by Diana, Diana Abu Jaber. Um, and this is, looks like a through the looking glass retelling. Like it is about a character who you could see even on the front cover goes through the looking glass. Um, we didn't talk about, uh, the fact that there is a sequel to Alice. It is much darker and scarier even than the first one. So, um, so I wanted to throw that out because I know we have listeners who are trying to find more um, diverse middle grade for their own libraries. I also almost paired this book with The Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern. I think that's the direction I would have gone had I not thought of the Wayward Children series. Um, I really like that book. I think it's a really like love or hate situation. Um, but I think... I think it pairs really well and kind of asks the question, like, what if you read all of these books about other worlds growing up and loved them so much and you never got invited into another world, but you know that they're there? (laughs) And I think that that's a really interesting fictional question as well. I think we're going to keep talking about that question as we traverse some other worlds in our fantasy theme. and. Yeah, Alice was just the start. This spring, we're continuing to explore the world of classic children's literature in your podcast feed and with our Patreon community. We would love to see you at our live online events this spring. Our Patreon Classics Club is more than bonus episodes and book talk, even though those are fabulous. Together, we're learning to be better, more critical, and thorough readers of classic literature. We love discussing books and reading with all of you, and we hope you'll join our group of nerdy readers at patreon.com slash novel pairings. Annual subscriptions are available at a discounted price, and we will be digging deeper into these children's classics with that Patreon community. A good way to keep up with us and to see what's happening in that community is by signing up for our newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. You can also follow us at novelpairingspod on Instagram. I always think it's super fun when our listeners tag us and show us where they're listening. So like if you're doing meal prep and listening to Novel Pairings or um, Joanne is always at a swim meet. Um, yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness, I love, I just love seeing when and where we're in people's earbuds. So go ahead and tag us in those in your stories. And in addition to shouting us out and tagging us on Instagram, a great way to support the show is by writing a review on Apple Podcast or in your favorite podcast player. We have received such sweet reviews. We just have the kindest audience and we are so grateful for those, Um, not only because they tell us that you're enjoying the show, but because those words boost novel pairings in the podcast player's algorithms and that way new literary listeners can find our show. So if you haven't taken the time to write a few words about why you love novel pairings yet, uh, please do so as we start our spring semester so we can reach new listeners as we explore classic children's literature. As always, thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we'll be back to discuss A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything 